There are times when we submit to challenges and then times when we eagerly hunt them down. How does our ability to persevere affect our approach? In this episode, we continue the story of Gregory Burns as he takes his first steps away from his conquests and toward a vast unknown. Was his perseverance an act of faith and success or a readiness to fail? We're going to explore the research of thought leaders in grit to learn how we can develop this quality ourselves. This is a podcast about B2B marketing and the account-based mindset. This is Reach. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Hiromi and I'm here with CEO and agency founder, Jason Thorgerson. Hi, glad to have you all. And Chief Creative Officer, Garrett Grinsky. Nice to be here. So Garrett, you were away for the last episode, but did that first chapter resonate with you? Because I, I thought Gregory's origin story had a lot of nice takeaways. Totally. And I appreciate when he was really young at the grocery store, he had this major turning point in life. And his sum of it was, I struggled, I made it, I moved on. And it's such a simple lesson. You know, his mom gave him the confidence, you got this. It looked crazy to onlookers. And I think this could be a guiding principle for this entire mindset. I thought yeah. that that bit of the story was really gut-wrenching <laughs> in a way. Visualizing that moment, Gregory on the ground at this grocery store and his parents just kind of like leaving him and what others may have been thinking. And it got me wondering, is his perseverance, is this quality that he exhibited brought about due to the way in which his parents parented him based on these experiences? And in her book about grit, Angela Duckworth said, exemplars of grit grew up imitating their parents and emulating them. If you want to bring forth grit in your child, first ask how much passion and perseverance you have for your own life goals. Hmm. And that was interesting. Think about Gregory's parents. They're very accomplished individuals. They had passion in what they did. And so- Not only was he maybe put through some of these circumstances that were challenging, but also observing his parents and their passion to commit to something, to endure throughout it. What part did that play in him developing into the person who he is today? Yeah, there seems to be this lingering nature versus nurture question in this story that we need to maybe explore a little bit further. Because like so far in this story... Gregory's parents have subjected him to circumstances that demanded his perseverance. Like you mentioned, the grocery store, uh, the surgeries, the public school. But in this next chapter, we start to see a shift as Gregory starts to set his own goals and starts to demand perseverance from himself. I graduated from UC Santa Barbara in the summer of 1980. I had a lot going for me in California, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't fulfilling me. On the external, I had a place to live. I had family nearby. I was taking art classes. I was checking all the boxes. But I wasn't pushing myself. And 1980 was the year there was no Olympics, right? Boycotted because of Afghanistan. The Olympic Committee voted to boycott the Summer Olympic Games in But Holland volunteered to do the Paralympics. And I, you know, I, I tried to go to Holland. I was training, and I didn't make the team. And at that moment, all the wheels fell off the cart. A bunch of the things that were solid in my life disappeared. It was one of those crisis moments. It wasn't just that I graduated from college and didn't know where I, what I was going to do. 
I had been living in a home near the beach, which I had found, and I got roommates and stuff, and one of them was my girlfriend. And we ended up getting a new roommate, who was a guy. And shortly thereafter, he and she became an item while we're still living in the same place. I had to move out, I couldn't stay there. So I didn't only lose the girl, but I also lost my home. I was getting some support from the state, but that all went away because I was graduating. So I had no insurance, I had no money. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. At the same time, I learned about something called post-polio syndrome, which is the potential for people with polio that previously unaffected muscles become weaker in the muscles you already had. So here I was, you know, I got this. I'm, I can run around the world on crutches and braces. I swim. I can do this. And then suddenly it's like, well, maybe not. Maybe you're going to lose your mobility. And at the age of 20, that freaked me out. I discovered that when things went south, when things went pear-shaped, if I retreated to the forest with my sketch pad and tried to make sense of the chaos in the forest, that where waterfall and lizards and geckos and trees and leaves, if I drew or painted that in my sketchbook, they calmed me. Okay, now I can deal with these issues. So I had a ton of art classes and I was just following my muse. 12 hours a day, I'd get up, breakfast, go to school, come back at 10 o'clock, eat something, go to bed and repeat. I was just doing massive amounts of airbrush painting, Chinese painting, calligraphy, fashion model design, painting, acrylics, oil, whatever. And then I saw this program at San Jose State to study Chinese painting, calligraphy, seal carving, art history, and, and eventually language in Taipei, Taiwan. And I thought, now that's kind of cool. But around the same time, Peace Corps had offered me a job to go to Marrakesh, Morocco for two years to run a home for children with polio. And that was pretty inviting, to be honest. But it was the fork in the road in my life because it really came down to Peace Corps, maybe security, whatever you want to say it was, or art. What do you want to do? And I said to myself, don't be afraid to give up what you have for what you might become. And my life got so big because I let go of that little nugget, I think, that led me to the road less traveled, and I've been on that road ever since. So I went to Taiwan in August, and it was like, what have I done? It's terrible. It's humid. It's raining every day. It's gray. When I went there, it's 1984. It, it was a city under construction. And I had just left the beach of Santa Barbara, California. I mean, I just left, you know, M Munster cheese or avocado sprouts. And here I am in Taipei eating carrots and tofu from the local market, living in a home with some students, dripping pipes and a, a spring bed. I was near the Fine Art Museum. I'd been there about a week in this underpass with all these people walking by. And I just literally stopped. And I said to myself, this sucks. And yes, I could have backed out of Taiwan, but I knew the pain of letting myself down would have been bigger than the relief. So I said, give this a month. Can you do that? You give it 30 days. You try it. You see if you can do it. And if after 30 days, 
you want to walk away, you're free to go. Okay, I'm going to stick it out for a month and see. And within that month, things turned around. And by the end of that month, I was up and running. And that reminds me of something I call the rubber band theory. When we leave a place, there's a rubber band that keeps us tethered to that place. And as we go farther away and spend more time and have more interactions and experience, the farther you stretch that rubber band, there's a still pull to come back to California, to home and hearth, to mom and dad, apple pie, whatever. But eventually, if you stay long enough, go far enough, that rubber band breaks and you're now freed. That tendency to go fall back to where you once were is severed. And you're now able to really be here and now where you are. I believe the rubber band slowly snapped over the course of a week or two. I became engaged. I ended up moving in with a Chinese family. And I was learning that while in Taiwan, you take your showers at night before you go to bed. You drink your soup after the meal. So I became a, a part of where I was. And I stopped fighting this feeling of going back. And I was finally going forward. I began doing Chinese painting classes once a week from two to five. And then I would just stay in the classroom and I'd paint you know, until seven or eight o'clock. I became so passionate about learning these Chinese arts. I really embraced the otherness of it. I ended up backpacking around China, Tibet, Nepal, India, Pakistan for 16 months, taking trains and buses, going into Buddhist temples all over the country and sketching and painting and drawing. I slept in a lot of train stations. I slept in a lot of ashrams in India, Sikh Gurdwaras and stuff like that. I met good people. I got support. I got friendships and communication and became a part of something that was different. And that's what broke the rubber band. I thought I was only going to be in Taiwan for a year, and I've been gone in Asia for the last 30 plus years. In the summer of 1990, I went with my girlfriend at the time to America for my sister's wedding in California. Prior to going to the wedding, I had this vision that I wanted to sail around the South Pacific with a purpose. I didn't want to be a tourist. And on the way back to Taiwan, we decided to stop in Tahiti, in Bora Bora, in fact, for a week. And we were going to have a, a vacation there together. We were living in a hut on the ocean. And on the third day, I saw this boat on the horizon, which looked a little bit like the African Queen, you know, with the Humphrey Bogart. That night, I'd gone to the jetty to sketch the sunset. And while I'm sketching, two girls come up to me and they say, what are you doing? I say, well, I'm, I'm painting the sunset. Oh, can we watch? Sure. And I found out these girls lived on that boat that I saw come into the harbor. I said, what are you doing on that boat? She said, well, this is a boat that is organized by a Danish organization, a bunch of teachers. They bought this 125-foot Danish lightship. They put a motor on it, and they sailed it around the world. And what were they doing? They had a crew of about 10 people that were making television documentaries. And the program and the boat was called The Return of Marco Polo. Turns out that their long term was to get to China and go back all the way to Denmark. So I, speaking Chinese, was suddenly an asset. You're hired, basically. So I sheepishly went back to my girlfriend that night and said, really sorry, but um, I'm getting on this boat. And she was very understanding. It was too big a cherry to pass. And suddenly, here I was on a boat 
with an international crew of 10 people sailing from Tahiti basically to New Zealand, which took nine months. We were very slow, making a 30-minute television documentary, meeting locals, asking them, you know, how do you dive for pearls? How do you how do you grow taro? What are your courtship rituals? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Micronesia. Today, the Marco Polo is in the Republic of Balao. Now, we have spent a lot of time in Polynesia and Melanesia, but this is our first and our only visit to Micronesia. Palau is an archipelago made up of about 200 islands. Lots of interesting stuff. And I was painting the whole way, so it was a magical moment. A personal note, it seems like Gregory is someone with purpose. Yeah. You know, Dr. Carol Dweck, <clears throat> professor of psychology at Stanford, she says, taking on challenges, persisting in the face of obstacles, figuring things out, capitalizing and learning from failure. She said, isn't that the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting, right? When you look at Gregory's story, it's like he's kind of found through perseverance, this purpose that continues to propel him forward. Yeah. He was a passionate individual. That's what I'm learning about Gregory and his story. And that passion is driving him to do different things, but also to, to face these challenges and overcome them. Yeah. There's a quote here from Jeff Bezos where he said, you'll find in life that if you're not passionate about whatever it is you're working on, you won't be able to stick with it. And hmm. you see that reoccurring theme to me in Gregory's story. He wants to be challenged. He wants to expand. He kind of followed his passion and that led him to new opportunities. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying as it pertains to Gregory's story in particular. Um, I have to admit, though, whenever I hear the advice to like follow your passion, follow your dreams, follow your heart, it doesn't always sit right with me. Um Mike Rowe, who was famous for, you know, dirty jobs, he was known for calling that out. This is, this is what he said. Look, if we're talking about your hobby, by all means, let your passion lead you. But when it comes to making a living, it's easy to forget. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you won't suck at it. <laughs> Staying the course, that only makes sense if you're headed in a sensible direction. And while passion is way too important to be without, it is way too fickle to follow around. Never follow your passion, but always bring it with you. <laughs> I, think, I think that's that self-awareness piece, right? It's not having unrealistic expectations, but having the mindset that you know who you are, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and challenging yourself to go above and beyond. Not being yeah. fixed in time, not being fixed in who you are, but also being aware of how, how can I stretch myself? Right. And, and that's basically the concept that Professor Carol Dweck advocates in her book on mindset, right? Is that she says she's always been kind of puzzled to see how some people with all this natural ability wilt in the face of challenges, while all these other people with much less thrive even when they fail. This is what she said. What we found was that some people believe their talents and abilities are just these fixed traits. You have a certain amount and that's it. Mm -hmm. But other people believe talents and abilities can be developed through hard work, good strategies, good mentoring from others. We found that 
having a fixed mindset led you to be afraid of challenges that might unmask your deficiencies, made you withdraw in the face of difficulty because you felt stupid. You didn't want to feel stupid. You didn't want other people to think you were stupid. Whereas having this growth mindset, the idea that your abilities could be developed, made you think, why waste my time looking smart when I can be getting smarter? And growth mindset doesn't mean everyone's the same, that they don't differ in talent and abilities. It just means everyone can grow. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where this idea of perseverance to me is interesting, is people that typically are more self-aware do have more of this growth mindset. They're willing to test. They don't think they're fixed in terms of their capabilities, but at the same token, they don't think they're Beethoven or that they right. can become that necessarily. They just think, I don't know what I could become if I don't continue to stretch myself and strive to pursue something. Right. And I guess what's interesting is, you know, contrasting your observation earlier about Gregory's parents, in more recent years, this idea of follow your passion is often tied to the notion that because you're naturally gifted, you're a genius, you can do anything. But Professor Dweck is saying this, this false sense of self-esteem is actually kind of disempowering. In the 1990s, the self-esteem movement took over the world. Uh, we were told to tell everyone how fabulous, brilliant, talented, special they were all the time. This was going to motivate them and boost their achievement. Instead, as you said, it was a complete disaster. It led to the acceptance of mediocrity. It didn't challenge people to fulfill their potential. And our research showed telling people they're smart actually backfires. It makes them afraid of challenges. It makes them uh, fold in the face of obstacles because they're worried, oh, does this not look smart? Am I not smart? The whole currency is built around smart. Mm -hmm. I found interesting, too, in contemplating this idea about passion, we can get fixed in our idea of what our passion is. And we can pursue that in the yes. same way that Carol Dweck talked about being fixed with regards to talent. She gives this example of how she was number one IQ in her classroom and how that ruined her. I feel like we can get that way about passion. Oh, I'm passionate about this. I must pursue it at all costs. But in Gregory's story, he hops on this boat. He has no idea what, what it entails if there's something to be passionate about, but he's willing to grow and find that. We could say, this is my passion in the same way that we could say, oh, this is my talent. And that may be limiting to us as well. Yeah. Is my passion about adventure and exploration and growth? Or is my passion about riding a boat and translating documentaries into Chinese? Yeah, yeah. I think the shared passion is... A passion for learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you have a passion for learning, you're going to mm -hmm. have some new experience. For him, it, it meant leaving the comfort zone of what home was to be in another culture. And despite it being challenging, being hard, I love this idea of the rubber band, that over time you stretch yourself so far that you become in this place, you know? Yeah. yeah. So he, he's continued to stretch himself, be passionate about learning, which has exposed him to new experiences and being able to endure throughout different challenges. In 
an article by Anna Schaffner, she made an interesting point. She said, if we did not persist with our efforts to speak, walk, master a bike, you know, and she goes on, uh, we would all remain stuck. And so what I found interesting about that is we persevere as infants. Uh, and we push through without necessarily an intellectual thought of why we're persevering to look, just continuously learn, right? But somehow as intelligent, reasoning adults now, we adopt this mindset of, ah, this is just where I'm at. So just recognizing we have that potential, we've done it before, I thought was interesting with regards to perseverance. Yeah, it, it seems like what you're both kind of saying is that in order to persevere, we need this growth mindset. And this growth mindset naturally leads to a diversity of experiences and focuses, right? And that's kind of interesting to me because in my conversation with Gregory, I just kept catching myself trying to narrow his focus. Mm. Like, of course, I know we're all diverse. We all have complex interests. And we're complex individuals. But as a brand identity, I kept wanting to put him in a box. Like, you know, what are you, Gregory? Are you, are you an artist? first and foremost, or a swimmer or an explorer. But I think what we're all coming to terms with here is that his passion is his brand. And you can't really put that in a box. I thought that was a good observation, Hiromi, that we often try to put someone into a box. And as we're looking at people that are high achievers, right, usually they're known for something. And it's like, oh, these people are just gifted people. And they're known for one thing. And we overemphasize the success and maybe just kind of that persona. And what we're finding in Gregory's story is that, yeah, there's a level of talent, but it was how much that passion pushed him to continue learning, to show up in the effort that he made. And that's working into various achievements along the way. And he's known for yeah. many things, like right. accomplished Olympian swimmer, Accomplished speaker, accomplished painter. We could go, list is on and on and on. You know, and it started yeah. from a young age too, just being faced with a reality of like, mm -hmm. he's very limited in terms of what people thought he could do, right? They probably put right. him in the bucket of like, oh, you're not going to be able to go to school. Mm -hmm. He was able to overcome that. <laughs> he put yeah. in the, he put in the time, the effort, and that's just one example. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet it is a delicate balance too, right? Because- as Professor Duckworth says, you know, we can't allow ourselves to be like a dog chasing squirrels all the time. That's, that might be passion, yeah, yeah. but it's not necessarily what she often refers to as grit. I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, and I study grit, which I define as this combination of loving what you do, passion for what you do, and perseverance, working really hard and being resilient about what you do. And the thing that makes grit different, I think, than, you know, just being a conscientious person or a self-controlled person is that you have this passion and this perseverance for the long term. If we only think about talent, then we maybe forget about effort and energy, about passion and perseverance. In my research, I find that grit and talent are hardly correlated at all. And sometimes they go in opposite directions so that somebody who's a little more able may be a little less gritty in certain samples. I find that grit predicts achieving things that you care about, especially. So, for example, if you are in uh, a sales company and you're a salesperson, 
it predicts whether you will stay in your job versus drop out and do something else. Grit is also linked to practicing really hard on things that you can't yet do as well as you'd like, but would make you better at what you do. That's called deliberate practice, and gritty people do more of it. That's one reason why they may be world-class if they stick with things for a very, very long time. My art teacher always told me that. I thought it was interesting. He would say, you know, if you look at any kid, like a, like a young, young kid, they'll hand you a, a, a picture that they drew of a, like an egg and they'll go on to describe in detail. Okay, so this is what's happening here. This is dinosaur and it's, you know, it's eating this other dinosaur, you know, just on and on. And it's obviously not there on the paper, but they see it They're It's they're excited about it. But then at some point, 90% of us look at that paper and we say, this sucks. I'm not an artist. And the other 10% of folks never stop dreaming about what's on that page. And and it's just, they're not being discouraged. That causes them to keep practicing and continue to get better at drawing. And that was his theory as to how artists are born. But you see that in real life to some degree, right? So, so are you saying, Harami, there's a chance for all of us? I mean... That, I think so. that if we keep on persisting in what we're doing, we have passion for this, that we can we can succeed because we are not a talented bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but let's give credit to all the talented folks that contributed to this episode. Thanks to Dr. Carol Dweck, Angela Duckworth, Anna Schaffner, and Mike Rowe for sharing their observations and their research. We've certainly learned a lot about the mindset of perseverance and the diverse experiences a growth mindset can lead to we haven't yet quite drawn a practical line between perseverance and distraction. This is something that Gregory would draw from in his own experiences in the years ahead. Here I was in 1992, swimming faster as a 38-year-old than as an 18-year-old. What happened? I think what had happened was I was focused. In our next episode, we'll follow Gregory to the Olympic Games, marathons, and Ironmans, all in the pursuit of excellence. We're also going to speak with the Sasha Group president and VaynerMedia veteran James Orsini, along with Global Growth Marketing Director at ReachDesk, Amber Bogey, on how this quality of perseverance relates specifically to marketing initiatives. All this and more next time on Reach.